So where were you on Saturday, October 16th, 1982? Where were you in 1982 on October 16th? Now, some of you were nowhere because you weren't born yet. All right, we got that part. Just curiosity, anybody in here in Wisconsin in 1982? <laughs> That'd be so great if somebody raised their hand. I would love that. Uh, okay, well, if you were in Wisconsin on October 16th, 1982, you might have been over at Camp Randall Stadium enjoying the football game between the Wisconsin Badgers and the Michigan State Spartans. Uh, they played football that day. Uh, Wisconsin was leading the game 16-10 to 10 in the third quarter, but Michigan State was deep in the Badgers' territory, and they were moving in for a score. There was about 78,000 people at the game that day, naturally because it was at Wisconsin's home stadium. Most of the people were Wisconsin fans. And in that moment, suddenly, as Michigan State is driving close to get a touchdown, the whole stadium erupted into one loud cheer. I mean, it was the third quarter, but the Wisconsin fans cheered as if they just won the game on a last-second field goal. The, the place went nuts. And then everybody together in the stadium started yelling, Coop, Coop, Coop. Muddy Waters was the coach of Michigan State, which is just a great name, by the way. So Coach Muddy Waters is on the sideline, and, and he had no idea what was going on. He said he was completely confused, did not know what was happening. Well, what was happening was 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were playing game four of the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, and they were down one to five. They were losing the game. 8.09 on the clock in the third quarter of the football game, they posted the final score of the Brewers-Cardinals game. And what happened was the Brewers had rallied. They had come back behind some of their players, in particularly Cecil Cooper, and they won the game 7-5. to five. And when they posted the score, the place went absolutely nuts. Now, this was back in the day before smartphones, and so nobody had a smartphone at the game. So they had uh, some little transistor radios to watch Cecil Cooper do his thing. They were listening to the game because they couldn't see the game. They were cheering about something they were not watching. Now, in the football game, with 13 seconds left, safety David Greenwood intercepted a two-point conversion by Michigan State that would have put them ahead by one point. And Wisconsin held on for a 24-23 win. That stands after 106 years of these teams playing. That's the closest margin of victory that's ever happened between the two teams. October 16th. 1982 was, was a good day, good sports day in Wisconsin. Some good things happened that day. But don't miss the picture of, of what happened in the stadium. People were excited. They were shouting, coop, 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 together about something that they did not see. They were ecstatic. They were excited about something that they could not see with their own eyes. Sometimes in life, all we see is what's in front of us. And sometimes what's in front of us is not great. In fact, sometimes what's in front of us is nothing to cheer about. It, it actually looks as if we're looking at something that's saying to us, you are losing. 
All we can see is heartache. And that heartache makes hope blurry, and we begin to lose heart. So is there any help for moments like that? Is there any help for when hope gets blurry? Is there any help for when our hearts begin to break and we begin to lose heart? Yes, there's great hope. There's great help. And you don't need a scoreboard and you don't need a smartphone and you don't need a portable radio to find it. It can be something that you find right here, right now. So what is that? Well, let's find out together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul is writing to his friends at the church at Corinth, and he says this, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul's writing about how he deals with suffering, how he deals with pain, how he deals with depression and discouragement and despair, how he deals with stress, how he deals with anxiety, how he deals with fear. That's what Paul's writing to us about. But why should we listen to Paul? Paul doesn't know us. He didn't know anything about us. Paul doesn't know what we had to deal with this week with our spouse. Paul doesn't know what we had to deal with this week with our kids or with our parents. He didn't know what we had to deal with this week at work or or at school or, or even at church or in the neighborhood. Paul has no idea the emotional stress we're under. He doesn't know the spiritual stress we're under. He doesn't know the medical stress we're under. Paul doesn't know us. Why should we listen to him? Why should we listen to his advice about how to deal with the worst moments of life? Well, here's a few reasons. Paul was beaten to the point of death many times. He was beaten with rocks, he was beaten with whips, he was beaten with rods, he was beaten with fists. Paul was mocked, he was screamed at, he was hated. He was robbed and he was mugged. He probably spent hundreds of nights sleepless, probably hundreds of nights in prison, and some of those nights in prison, maybe most of them, he was sick and with no medicine. He was left for dead over and over again, sometimes left for dead, cold, and naked. And he got bit by a snake too, you know. This guy had not an ounce of luck, right? Everything went wrong. And why did Paul endure all of these terrible things? Why did all these terrible things happen to him? Please don't miss this. All these terrible things happened to Paul so that you would hear about Jesus. See, Paul existed for the glory of God. And his existence for the glory of God was to make much of Jesus and to make sure that Jesus got out of his community, that Jesus got out of just his church. He wanted the gospel to get to you. And so Paul suffered. He suffered intensely so that the gospel would get across the ocean to every corner, including the corner of this room. Because Paul wanted you to be saved. Most, if not many, days for Paul were rough. He was at rock bottom. He was in the basement of rock bottom. And what did he do? How did he deal with his suffering? How did he deal with his pain? How did he deal with moments when it seemed like things were so bad? The best thing for him to do was just to quit and give up hope, lose heart, and just give in. What did he do in those moments? 
he kept looking at things that he couldn't see. What does that mean? Well, it means he kept looking at things through the eyes of the gospel. Paul would, would kind of scream at his soul, soul, this suffering, it's temporary. This prison is temporary. This pain is temporary. This stress is temporary. This anxiety is temporary. This sickness is temporary. This army of devils in this world, they are temporary. Paul would, would keep shouting that to his soul. And then he would maybe whisper to his soul, but soul, the love of God is not temporary. The love of God is eternal. The peace of God is eternal. The hope of God is eternal. The salvation of God is eternal. The protection of God is eternal. The, the peace, the hope, the joy, the love, the grace, the mercy, the power, the safety, the salvation, everything about God, it is eternal. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. There's no king, there's no presidents, there's no queen, there's no one who's ever been in position of power that can ever say that. The dominion of our God endures for generations and generations forever and ever. Paul would remember the words of the psalmist and he would say to his soul, soul, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the God who loves you, the kingdom of the God who saved you, that kingdom is eternal. That kingdom lasts forever. His kingdom is forever. And when his hope was blurry, when he had been beaten so many times in the face that, that his eyes were swollen and, and he couldn't see, Paul would keep telling his soul, hey, you know what? You're a child of the king of kings, and the kingdom of your king is forever. Forever. We could say that Paul fought all of his depression, all of his discouragement, all of his despair with one word, and, and that word's eternal. Paul doesn't lose heart because the promises of God in Jesus are eternal. Eternal means that the promises of God in Jesus, they, they never end. For believers who are in heaven right now, they are enjoying the full pleasure of the promises of God. They exist right now. And for believers who are still on this earth, we, we partially live in those promises. But for all believers, the promises of God in Jesus are eternal. They will last forever. Eternal promises, everlasting promises, forever promises, promises that cannot and will not end. No one in this room can make a promise like that. Not to your spouse, not to your kids, not to your parents, not to your favorite politician, not to your favorite team, not to your favorite church. You cannot make a promise that doesn't end. God is the only eternal promise keeper. And that's what it means to be in Christ. To, to be in Christ means that, that all of these promises of God, they, they are ours. But someone might say, I can't see those promises. 
I mean, how, how do I know those promises are real? And, and what does it have to do with me getting hope right now? Pastor Ben Stewart described the promises of God like this, or kind of like this. He said, hey, happy birthday. I got you a present, but it's invisible. Yeah, try that next week on Mother's Day, all right? Yeah. Hey, Mom, I got you a present, but it's invisible. You know, you won't be able to see it. It's, it's crazy, right? An invisible promise. You know, an invisible promise doesn't sound like something that will help in the middle of the final exam. An invisible promise doesn't sound like something that will help in the middle of the playoff game or in the middle of the court proceedings or in the middle of the emergency surgery. Invisible promises don't, don't sound like there are a whole lot that would help us. But, but are the promises of God really invisible? Think about those Wisconsin fans that day. They, they're in the stadium going nuts, cheering on something they can't see. Game four of the World Series and that win, it was invisible to them because they're 70 miles away at a football game. But to the fans that were at the baseball game, it wasn't invisible. They saw it with their own eyes. They experienced the comeback of the team. They were shouting and screaming even more than the folks over in Madison. So how do we know that the eternal, invisible promises of God are real? We know they are real because of Jesus Christ. He's the definer of everything. We know the invisible promises of God are real because of Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The invisible promises of God, the eternal promises of God, the everlasting forever promises that cannot and will not end, all of those things of God are in Jesus. In the birth and the life and the death and, and amazingly and stunningly in the resurrection of Jesus, all of the eternal promises of God become real. Not everyone agrees with that. The late physicist Stephen Hawking once said this, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. So, so how do we know the account of Jesus is real? How do we know that Jesus makes the things that are eternal the promises of God that last forever. How do we know that, that Jesus makes those things real? How do we know that Jesus cancels out the idea that this is all a fairy story? Paul Perkin is a pastor in London. I've shared his story before about how he was studying physics. And while he was studying physics, he, he began to hear about the resurrection of Jesus a little more. And, and his first thought was that every Christian had just lost their mind for believing in something so foolish. But then he met some intelligent people that believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And so he decided that he would investigate it on his own. And he used methods of science to begin his investigation. This is what he writes. 
Of course, a man rising from the dead breaks the normal laws of nature. But those laws don't say what has to happen. They merely describe what normally does happen. When you go to unusual circumstances, like down to absolute zero temperature or up to the speed of light or back to the beginning of time, those are very unusual circumstances and different laws apply. So I came to realize that if God had stepped into the world he'd created and become a man, that would be a pretty unusual, in fact, unique set of circumstances. Under those conditions, different laws would apply. And it would be no surprise if God's entrance into the world and the departure from it broke all the normal laws of life and death, perhaps a virgin birth, perhaps rising from the dead. So maybe it's not so ridiculous after all. Maybe it's reasonable that if Jesus was and is God, that he must have risen from the dead. Maybe it's not ridiculous. Maybe it's reasonable. But even if it's reasonable, that doesn't make us true. Even, even if it's not ridiculous, that doesn't mean it's true. So, so is there any evidence, any evidence that backs up this notion that the eternal life that Jesus has purchased cancels out the idea that this is all a fairy story? Perkin goes on. Well, first of all, of course, Jesus did really die. The Romans knew their job. They were experts at crucifixion. It's foolish to dismiss the fact that Jesus was brutally crucified. And his body really had gone from that grave. The tomb was empty. Even his enemies had to admit it, and they couldn't produce the body. And then there were the resurrection appearances. Many people on different occasions, amounting to hundreds altogether, claimed that they'd seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. And then there was the transformation of the disciples from cowards to the most courageous men who were not only prepared to die for their faith, most of them did for believing this truth that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, just as he said. He is risen indeed. And that truth changes everything. It means that because he is risen, the eternal, invisible promises of God are real even though we can't see them yet. Yet is the key word there. We we can't see them yet. They're real, and we will see them, but, but when? Well, we'll see them in their fullness when we die. Great. So glad I came to church today. Not only am I stressed out, full of anxiety, I'm mad, I'm frustrated. Now I got to listen to some guy talk about dying, which I don't want to hear. And I got to hear that maybe there's going to be no hope for me until I die. Yeah, great news. Glad I'm here today. What was Paul doing day after day after day? In the prison, left outside at the dump of the city, beaten, cold, and naked. What was he whispering to himself when he was shipwrecked out in the middle of the night, hanging on to whatever he could to float in the water? What did Paul whisper to his soul as he sat in prison day after day and night after night, sick with no water and no food? What did Paul keep whispering to his soul? He kept whispering to his soul, Christ is risen indeed. Because that truth changes everything. It is not the Easter story. It is the story. 
There is no other story. The story every single day is that Christ is risen indeed. And that story, that truth invades every single dark moment in our lives. This is what he wrote to the folks at Philippi, Philippians 1.20. I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Dear Christian, you will not be put to shame. I, I want you to know, I am not standing up here entertaining you or entertaining myself. I will never be put to shame for telling you over and over again, Christ is risen indeed. You will never be put to shame, not because Paul says it, not because I say it, but you will never be put to shame because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul goes on to say this, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm alive, I get Jesus. If I die, man, I really get Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to, to die is gain. What he's saying is the verified resurrection of Jesus cancels out the fairy story. The verified resurrection of Jesus doesn't just cancel out the fairy story. It cancels out the fear of death. Now, that's easier said from the pulpit or heard from the sanctuary on Sunday than really done in real life, right? I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, we focus more on the nearness of death than we do the nearness of heaven. If we're really, really honest with ourselves... We focus on the fear of death and don't even think about the reality of heaven. So how do we balance that out? How can we, we change that? Well, we change it in the same way that we do everything else as a Christian. Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Can I just confess for us that we grow weary and lose heart. I do. All the time. All the time. I grow weary and I lose heart. And you know the only way we can fix that is, is with the eyes. <laughs> with the eyes of our heart. The only way we can fix growing weary and losing heart is by doing exactly what verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The way that we deal with stress, the way that we deal with anxiety, the way that we deal even with death, death is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We balance out the nearness of death and we balance out the nearness of heaven by fixing our eyes on Jesus. But, but what does that mean? What does that look like in real life? 
well, I'm going to ask an, an atheist and a saint who is in heaven right now to help us think through that question. What does fixing your eyes on Jesus look like in, in real life? Martin Hughes grew up in the church, but he no longer believes in God. A couple of years ago, he wrote an article, and the title of the article is, What This Atheist Misses About God. And these are some of the thoughts that he shared in the article. There's a lot I don't like about the God I grew up believing in until I was 28. The vengeance of the Old Testament, the narrow-minded rules from the people in the Bible who created him, the way theology is often used to control people, the unwarranted authority, all that upsets me. But then he goes on to say this. There are refuges I had as a Christian that are hard to find as an atheist. And he described a few of those. I kind of wish there was a heaven. I don't miss the concept of hell, but it would be nice to, after a difficult life on earth, indulge in the wonder and beauty of heaven. And then there's the concept of having a friend who genuinely cares about you, who is over the whole universe. I don't like the concept of having him poking in nosy like the all-seeing police. But the idea of having a friend who is all-powerful, who cares about you and empathizes with you, that's a nice feeling. Unfortunately, this doesn't exist. When you never have fixed your eyes on Jesus or when you quit fixing your eyes on Jesus, true beauty fades. It disappears. And the true beauty I'm talking about is the, the true beauty of the mercy of the manger, the true beauty of the, the power of the cross, the true beauty of the hope of the empty tomb, and the true beauty of the nearness of heaven. See, when you quit fixing your eyes on Jesus, or if you've never fixed your eyes on Jesus, you will, or at the very least, will be tempted to believe the sad lie that the wonder and beauty of heaven does not exist. And if you believe that, then all you have to live for is the nearness of death. And, and the tempting but false hope of being here on this earth and just trying to do your best, just trying to love each other, just, just trying to get along. Or in the vernacular of our culture, just painting a wall, just learning to dance, just calling your mom, buying a boat, drinking a beer, singing a song. And that's it. That's what you have to live for. It's tempting. It, it, it will provide some temporary joy in life, but it will not be an answer to the nearness of death. Only the nearness of heaven can speak to the blurry hope in our soul. So how do we get there? How do we get to the kind of hope that helps today and verifies that there is a tomorrow even after death? And let me just say this. That tomorrow is for anyone. As, as John Piper has said, 
everyone lives forever. Everyone. You either live forever as an enemy of God or as his friend, but we all live forever. So how do we live forever knowing that tomorrow we live with Jesus one way or the other? How do we, how do we get to the nearness of heaven a little more? John Angel James was a pastor in London about 200 years ago. I was reading a sermon earlier this week from him from 1846. And I don't know how you think about death and dying, but, but he had a few comments in, in this sermon that you know, I maybe can mildly put have, have almost changed my life. I don't know if they will have the same impact on you that they've had on me this week, but, but I hope at the very least they'll, they'll stir your mind and your heart a bit. This is what he said about being a heavenly-minded person. He is willing to leave all and go to God whenever it is judged proper by him to decide the matter. His hopes of heaven do much to destroy his love of life of this world and destroy his fear of death. The nearness of heaven is the only way to destroy the fear of death. And then he says this about wanting to go to heaven. And patience to die is often felt by those who have ceased to feel any attractions in life. And the grave is coveted as a shelter from the storms of earth. Can I just update that since it's 200-year-old language? That's when things are so bad in your life, you just go, man, I, just, I wish Jesus would just take me now. I said that. Listen to what he says. There is nothing holy in such wishes. Nothing heavenly in such impatience. It is only nature groaning after rest and not grace longing for its perfection. Let me update. I just want to get out of here, not I want to be with Jesus. It's different. Fixing your eyes on Jesus will never lead you to have an unholy, graceless longing for the nearness of heaven. That's not what fixing your eyes on Jesus will do. And then he sums it up this way. Perhaps the most holy frame is to have no will or wish about the matter, but a readiness to live or die as God shall appoint. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He says this. The glory of a Christian is neither to be weary of the world nor fond of it, to be neither afraid of death nor impatient after it, to be willing to go to heaven the next hour from the greatest comforts or to wait for it through many lingering years amid the greatest hardships, the most self-denying and laborious duties, and the severest and most complicated sufferings. Neither weary nor fond. Just, just here with joy in the gospel for the glory of God and for other people. You see, there's something freeing about this. See, the, the nearness of heaven causes us to be amazing citizens on earth. The nearness of heaven brings us joy that no one can take away. That no one can shoot away that no one can burn away, that no one can explode away, that no one can mock away. No one. 
the nearness of heaven for a believer who has all the promises of God in Jesus Christ cannot be taken away. Not long before he was crucified, Jesus was with his closest friends and he made a promise to them. He knew they were going to get arrested. He knew they were going to get beaten and tortured. He knew they were really getting ready to go through it. And why were they going to be beaten and tortured and go through such terrible things? Well, because they were following Jesus and they were going to keep following Jesus. But knowing all of that, Jesus turned to him and, and he made them this promise. John chapter 14, verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And then with his death, and then with his resurrection, he purchased that promise. He guaranteed that promise with his blood and with his risen life. Jesus did not offer them a fairy story. He offered them eternity, and then he guaranteed it with his own life and his own resurrection. Is hope blurry to you today? I mean, are you, are you so angry today? So bitter? Are you, are you just in a terrible mood? Are you sad? Are you mad? Is your heart broken? Are you losing heart? Are you puffed up with pride? Are you destroyed with despair? Are all of those things so great that you cannot see or feel or even believe in hope? If that's you and you're not a Christian, please know that the Word of God says that blurry will turn into eternal darkness without Christ. So we plead with you to repent and believe on Jesus today. And if you're a believer, that blurry will turn to eternal light. The light of the world. Jesus, in whom there is no darkness at all. None. Famous French painter Renoir suffered immensely from paralyzing arthritis. His son even said that when visitors came over, they, they could not stop staring at his deformity. His arthritis was so bad. And yet he kept painting. He kept drawing. He kept doing everything that he was doing before. He was still creating masterpieces when his hands were full of pain. Another famous French artist was Henri Matisse. The story is told that Matisse was over with Renoir one day and, and he asked him, why do you keep painting when the pain is so bad? And this is what Renoir said. The pain passes but the beauty remains. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Dear Christian, the pain of everything in this world that we're facing today and will face, it will pass. But those words from Jesus will never pass. They will never fade. And one day, because he is risen indeed, 
our faith will be sight. Oh, what a day that will be.